Hall of Fame songwriter Linda Perry rose to fame out of the late 1980s San Francisco club scene with the band Four Non Blondes, where her breakout song What's Up became an international hit and remains a call to action anthem for multiple generations, including today's. She attempted a solo performance career, including songwriting stylistic shifts that were, frankly, overlooked by commercial radio. Those songs are incredibly compelling and in my opinion, due for mining by contemporary performers. But Linda really found her stride as the songwriting inspirational partner for artists like Pink, Christine Aguilera, Gwen Stefani, Alicia Keys, Courtney Love, Celine Dion, Kelly Osbourne, and many others. With five number ones and many more chart-topping hits, she has proven her extraordinary brilliance beyond her early success and today discusses her unique intuitive songwriting style with us on Backstory Song. Welcome to Backstory Song. I'm Doug Burke, your host, and today we are thrilled and honored to have Linda Perry, who was a 2015 inductee into the Hall of Fame of Songwriters with us to talk about the backstory, vision, and creative process of her songwriting. So obviously, you started with Four Non Blondes, but why did you start writing songs and when did you start writing songs? I know you got your first guitar at the age of five. I think you wrote songs like Pity Birds and Desperate. Pity girls. Pity, pity girls. girls. It's a pity girls and desperate. Sorry, I make a lot of flubs. <laughs> and then obviously you had the breakout smash with What's Up. Mm-hmm. And, um, do you know how many times that video has been listened to on YouTube? No, I feel like somebody said that it, it was like it broke something massive. It's 859 million listens. Almost a billion. It's your most played. How much money I probably made on that? Like $5. Part of the reason I started this is to um, actually fix that problem. I believe songwriters are overlooked in the Spotify Pandora world in, in, a, in a radical way. Well, you know, when you were in MTV and your, your video played on MTV, if it was played in prime time, you got forty nine ninety five, And if it was played in the after hours, it was 39 95. And then you got, you know, your money from radio. So songwriters were making a lot of money, you know, pre 2000, I should say. And then computers happen and they weren't prepared. Nobody thought that this would come to this. And, and it's unfortunate, like I can have a song on Pandora play 500 million times. And I probably made $1,500 off of that. If that happened to me before 2000, like I would be completely taken care of, but it's like you have to work extra hard right now. The other remarkable thing about that YouTube statistic is that you released that song in 92 and YouTube didn't start till 2005. So you have almost a billion plays. Your number two most listened to song on YouTube is the He-Man meme of that song with 169 million <laughs> listens. You can't go wrong with the He-Man version. You like that? I was I wanted your reaction to that. Like of course. I mean it's awesome. It's awesome. You love it? 
I mean, I think it's anytime you have um, you, a song and it's either parodied or performed or covered or however. I mean, I think that that's the whole thing that we have to expect as songwriters is you're hoping that you write a song somebody wants to cover or parody or do whatever it is because that's the whole point. It's like as soon as you write the song and you release it out there, you have to understand you're releasing it out to the universe and to the world and you have no longer have any control over what happens and you're going to hear bad remixes and disco versions and country versions and karaoke versions, like a million karaoke versions. And and that's amazing because you write a song all by yourself in your own little tiny world and all of a sudden the whole universe is hearing it. So do you ever feel like it's 55 years and your life is still trying to walk up that great big hill? It'll be 65 and 75 and 85, 95. It'll all be the same for me. I don't I stay the underdog. I'm always like, still today, after being in this business for so long, I'll be like, I need to talk to somebody, you know, that's in some CEO or whatever. And I cold call people, you know, and just, hey, or email and say, hey, it's Linda Perry and really like to talk to you about something. And I'm always shocked when somebody responds within five minutes. And it's like, of course, you know, I still live in that shock of not understanding the scope of where I am sitting in life right now. If my career and success was labeled 10 steps, 10 steps on the ladder and 10 is your career and your success, to me, I'm on three. I have a long way to go and I'm constantly fighting and struggling because I don't take for granted what comes to me and I don't ever feel like I'm good enough. And so I'm constantly trying to do more and more and stay true to my heart. And hopefully that, you know, I'm setting an example of somebody who is doing it her way and not the way of the industry. And I think that that's kind of why people pick up my call because they know I'm very credible because I'm super transparent. I'm really honest. I'm right to the point. I don't bullshit. I deliver quality. I might not have quantity, but I definitely deliver quality. You're an incredibly authentic songwriter and person. And we're grateful for that as your listeners here at Backstory Song. Why did you call the song What's Up when, you know, the chorus is not that? Well, probably because what's going on was already taken and you can't really fuck with a song like that. But also I thought it was more interesting. It's like, you know, what's up? What's up with fucking the world? What's up with where I'm at right now? it felt more grounded and more true to the song. You know, like that was the intention. The intention was not what's going on. It's more like, what the fuck is up, man? It's like, why is it always seem like either I'm struggling, there's some fucking political mess happening. Why is this all happening in the world? And I think it was Reagan, I think at the time when, was it 93 Reagan, 92? What ninety? No, what was ninety? I think felt like that was Reagan or Bush or the. It was Reagan or Bush, but you know there were some really not so awesome choices being made. But I'll take those motherfuckers back in a heartbeat over the one stupid idiot one that we have right now. Yeah, and I don't. I'm sorry to be harsh, but it's like it's laughable, but then it's super sad, you know, because it's like 
I'm not coming from a political point of view. It's not Democratic versus Republican. It's just human. And the human that is standing as a leader is, it's pathetic. It's, it's, it's like, is this for real? You know, I keep thinking Mark Burnett is producing the presidency right now. Just let's throw this in. Just say this. And I guarantee it's going to make good TV. You know, like literally, I swear to God, I, I really believe that theory that Mark Burnett is standing behind the president and producing him right now, producing a mess. And these people are going to go down in history of the, all this disruption, you know, but beauty is coming out of it. Community is coming from it. There's a world that's wide awake. A lot of wonderful things will happen during this historical extremely historical time in, in our life with all the shit that's happening right now, all at once. And I think this is why this song has such legs to it. The what's up, what's going on is a double entendre. It's something that you say to your friend, hey, what's up? What's going on? You know, But that's not what you're saying in this song, is it? It's like, you're saying, what the F is going on here in this world? And that question has not ended. It's, in fact, it's probably gotten like more pronounced for the world. That's why the song is timely and it can go, it'll have a lot of legs. It'll continue to be this epic anthemish type of song for all the generations to come because I think that there's people that try to write songs that are for today. And then there's people that are trying to write songs for life and those are the songs that I choose to focus on is how am I going to make an impact to this generation, the next one? What can I say that's going to be here 20 years from now? Those songs are harder and you don't write as many of those. So I focus on that, you know, and I think that What's Up is definitely a song that when my son is 40, he's going to be playing to his kids and they're going to be singing it and I'm certain it'll be still a classic and in, in the world. And you get one of those, man. It's fucking awesome just to have one, but I got a few of those, you know, right now. So it's, I'm happy about that. Yeah. You have many of these, but you know, this was your breakout. You, you and Krista Hillhouse and the band were playing in this club scene in San Francisco. I guess that's where you work the song out. One of the things I love, and I always ask in my backstory song is I love lyrics that are not words and almost the entire chorus and the break of this song are these things like, Hey, it's not just, Hey, it's, Hey, yeah, 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 yeah. You know? And then it's, Ooh, did that just come to you when you write, Ooh, do you write, Oh, Oh, dot, dot, dot. Like when you write the lyric out, how does that happen as, as the songwriter? I actually rarely write my lyrics down. So I ad lib. I just keep doing that until I find the lyric. And so with What's Up, it was literally me just sitting there and and I just kind of opened my mouth. And I think I, because I was 24, but 20, I said 24 years of my life and still trying. And then I was like, that doesn't sound right. And then I just went 25 years. That felt like, right. You know, so then. And I just make it up 25, trying to get up that, and just ad-libbing. I do that. I did that, I think, for probably a good 30 minutes. And then 
all the lyrics just started showing up. And then when it got to that break after the chorus, it was like, well, I don't want to hear any words. I'm just right now. And I just went, ooh, 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 ooh. I was tending to write lyrics there and I was putting that as a filler. But then I loved it so much. I was like, no, I'm going to leave that. I think, you know, sometimes you don't have to say words. It's an emotion and it's some of most people's favorite part, that one area. No question. So I just try to stay true to the song. I don't edit as I go along. I just am playing. That's just how I am as a songwriter. I, I ad lib and I'm just on the fly. You can give me three chords right now, tell me anything, and I'll just, you know, make up a song right here on the spot with you live, you know, and because I have that trust and that deal with my creative, like, hey, listen, I promise I'll be honest if you just let me have the creative. I'll be worthy to that. And so that's kind of the deal I have. You have amazing gut instincts about this stuff. It's, it's a gift. It's very few people on the planet can do that. And both the hey, yeah, yeah, yeah part and the ooh part, I think some of the greatest non-word lyrics ever written. You know, my brother and I, we love the version of Buy a Little Help from My Friend by Joe Cocker, where, you know, you just like, what's he saying? Well, it doesn't matter because he's just communicating this emotion. Yeah. And you communicate emotion in such an effective way, both in the actual word lyrics, but also in these non-lyrics. And it's throughout your songwriting. We're going to come up to some other songs where it plays a role. It just sounds like birds cooing when you go to the break. Anyway, so you go in the studio with David Tickle as your producer. And, you know, it, you know you've talked about this in other interviews, how, you know, you guys trusted him, you know, signed by the label, Interscope Records, top label in the country, maybe, you know, one of the top ones. They actually weren't. The, the greatest thing about Interscope, why I chose them, you know, band wanted all the bigger, fancier labels. Interscope was independent and they just started. They had Marky, no, they didn't have Marky Mark. They had Gerardo, they had Primus, and um, yeah, maybe they had Marky Mark, and then they had Four Non Blondes. They were just starting out. So I loved them because they were boutique. And then they, what they really had was Jimmy Ivy, you know, and then obviously Jimmy Ivy's just a star. So at the time, we actually broke Interscope. Four Non Blondes was their biggest act, and we broke them. So Jimmy has an immense respect and loyalty, you know, with me. And, you know, we ended up being very good friends and I confide in him a lot. And, but yeah, so they know, they know what we did and they weren't expecting it at all. But yeah, so we're in the studio with David Tickle and he was not my choice, but when you're in a band, it's a democracy. You have to raise your hand and vote. And he won because the band all voted for him. I was looking for something, you know, I wanted Steve Lillywhite. I was actually even interested in Terry Date. He's a really great engineer that did all the Mother Love Bone and did all those guys back then in Seattle and really incredible engineer, under underrated guy. So I was trying to get a little more raw and the band chose uh, David Tickle and, you know, it wasn't my personal thing, but I've never been in a studio before. And I just felt like it didn't sound good to my ears. And so I remember playing a guitar and and being like, oh man, this, and when I'm in the live room, I'm like, I'm in a Les Paul and, you know, 63 Vox. And it's like, oh man, it's fat. It's like in my face. This is, man, this is awesome. And then I'd go into the control room and I'd hear the guitar and, and it'd sound 
really small, very distant, you know, and I didn't know he was compressing it heavily and putting a lot of reverb on it. So, and I go, David, come in here. And I'd play and I'm like, it's like thunderous in here. You know, where is that? I want to hear that in the room. Why can't I hear that? And he was like, Linda, just let me be the producer and you just be in the band. And that's how all my questions were met by that guy. It's like, can't you just be the singer? Let me be the producer, blah, 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 until he ruined what's up. And I took it to the label and I said, I'm not releasing this song. This is horrible. There's just no fucking way. I got the band to go with me to the plant in Sausalito. We had one reel of tape. And I produced it. I went in there, dialed in sounds. I have no idea what I'm doing. I just listened to what sounded good to my ears. The engineer there helped me. He was extremely, you know, behind me. And because I had played him the original, what David Tickle did, he's like, oh. So we did that all night long. David Tickle showed up like around, I don't know, one or two o'clock in the morning, right when we got our last take. We mixed it and got it delivered for master the next day. And when I presented the fact that I should be producer on this, I was met again with everybody this time. Can't you just be happy you saved the day? (laughs) One of the greatest songs ever written, most loved by the fans. I guess they were wrong on that one, huh? (laughs) And so that is the actual version, you know, I produced and David Tickle did not produce it. So from that moment on, it was like very clear to me that I will never ever experience that ever again. That's never going to happen. You're not going to have these dudes telling me just to go and be a singer because they think they know more. And so I became a major ball buster. And ever since that day, I'm like, that will never, ever happen to me again. It hasn't. And if it does, I just call it out right on top. I'm like, you know, there was this one incident with this one producer where I did a song for Gwen Stefani, What You Waiting For? And so I did the whole demo. The demo was awesome. And they asked, the producer asked for the session. And I was like, okay, I'll get it. You know, if they want to pull stuff, fine. That motherfucker used pretty much my whole demo, (laughs) including vocals, and didn't put, give me production. And I was like, those are my guitars. That's my backgrounds. That's my lead. That's my bass. You know, those are my drums. That's all my shit in there. Those are my keyboards. What did you do? (laughs) Yeah, and exactly. I think he he beefed up the beat and added another bass and that was about it. And it came out with no production for me. I went to Jimmy. I said, hey, this motherfucker. So Jimmy, on the next round of CDs, he pulled it and put my name on there. I don't think I've even heard of that producer since then, you know? So he had a reputation for doing stuff like that. Everybody let him slide because he was a big producer. And they were even telling me just, you know, you should just let it go. That's what he does. And I'm like, no fucking way. Are you kidding me? I'm not going to work my ass off for this motherfucker to take credit. And so I stood up for myself and got my name back on there. And, you know, and with this business, you have to, Yeah. you have to fight. It's a struggle. It's not an easy business. It is not. My son is showing interest in, he's five years old. He Oh, God. That's when you started. That's when you got your first guitar. Like a David Bowie, I'm telling you. My, my son is insanely talented and creative and, and very theatrical. I'm not kidding you. Sometimes I'm watching him and I'm like, gosh, okay, this is going to be his journey and I'm going to let him have it, but I'm a little scared for him and what this business is going to be, you know, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, right? So the next big song you do, maybe I'm, 
out of school here on this because let's skip over your next album for a second. And you get to the pink, get the party started. You really produce this thing. You start playing with equipment and really take your production talents to another level with this song. And one thing you do in all your songs is you get across emotions amazingly, but typically your emotions are about heartbreak and trauma and pain and struggle and the underdog overcoming. This song is not that. This is the opposite of that, which really shows your versatility as a songwriter, if you ask me. It's just, let's talk about this song. So get the party started. You know, I moved from San Francisco and came to Los Angeles and I'm an analog girl. I mean, you can see, you know, these are all Poltics and Fairchilds and I have my API over here. I'll always have that. I have a bunch of outboard gear underneath me right now. And um, But when I moved here, I was like, I got to get hit, man. I got to figure out what all that shit is on the radio because I couldn't stand the sound of it. So I went to a friend of mine that was all in the now. And I said, what's this shit that people are using right now? And he's like, it's like Triton keyboard, NPCs, you know, samples from Roland, you know, expansion card and, you know, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, all right. So I went and bought all that. And oh, and D88. And I'm like, okay. So I went and bought all that. I put it all together. It took me like all day to put it together. I didn't know this stuff. I'm analog. Analog is plug and play, dial in stuff, you know, amped. But this is all like, you can't just use the presets. You got to fuck around with shit. You know, drums can't just be a kick and a snare. It's got to be like three kicks. It's got to be three snares and different sounding hi-hats to balance each other, you know, congas, whatever. So I get on the MPC. Now everything's all set up and I'm just like going you know, I'm just going to have fun with this. So I get the MPC. I start with the MPC. And mind you, I'm doing this all live. So the MPC, I didn't understand it quite yet. So I just played the beat like for three and a half minutes, you know? So I'm just like, you know? And so I'm doing that. And then I go back and I add, right? So then I'm like, okay, I need some percussion. So I get shakers and I'm just like, you know, and congas. I start putting that in there. So here's my beat. Then I'm like, okay, bass. I kept scrolling around to find a bass, but I couldn't. So I just picked up my bass and I just did that line. Boom, 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 boom. So I'm like, okay, I play all that for three and a half minutes, you know, because I don't have Pro Tools. I'm just in a Tascam. And then I get on the Triton. I'm like going crazy. Like every single sound that I found, I stopped and I'm like, okay, I'm going to do this. And then one was like a weird clav. And then there was like some crazy horns from the Roland, you know, then, then I was like, okay, I need guitar. And I got the wah, wah and just played wah. And then I'm like, okay, this sounds really great. There's so much going on, but it was working. I was like, oh, this is so much fun. Upbeat. And I just grabbed, I had a bullet microphone and bullet microphone for you guys. So, you know, is a, a harmonica microphone. So green bullet. Yeah. So I'm like, what am I going to say? And I'm like, and I was just like, I'm going to think of every cliche possible. I'm coming up. So you better get this powder stuff. And then I just, the words just showed up, you know? And then I did go back after I laid a vocal down and then I started writing down what I was saying. Cause I was just saying so much craziness and then I made it make sense. And then I just laid down the vocal and I was laughing cause I knew it was a hit. I was just like, this is so awesome because I didn't think at all. To me, I was just playing and having fun. I wasn't trying to write a song. I was just trying to understand what this equipment did. And then literally a week later, get a phone call 
from this girl Pink and saying, you know, I love you, blah, blah, blah. I want you to sing on my record or write a song with me. I called her and I said, hey, do you have the right Linda Perry? Because I'm really not hip at all, you know? And I saw a video of her with the pink hair and the bling bling. And I'm like, you know, I'm not hip. Uh, you might have the wrong Linda Perry. And she's like, started laughing. She's like, are you the Linda Perry that was in Four Non Blondes? I'm like, yeah. The one that wrote Dear Mr. President? Yeah. The one that wrote What's Up? I'm like, yeah. She's like, I have the right Linda Perry. And I'm like, okay, weird. And so I went and met her and we just got along so well. And then I left her with Get the Party Star. I said, hey, I just wrote this song. I don't know if you're interested, but here, and I gave her an MP3 of it. And then she called me probably three or four days later. And LA Reed said, it looks like we have our first single. And then that's kind of how we started. And then she came here to my house. We just wrote like 15 or 16 songs and eight of them ended up on the album. Wow. Alicia, you call her. Alicia. Alicia. Most of us and my listeners know her as Pink. Yeah, I know. It, it was super hard to call. I never could call her Pink and she you know, was fine with that. And I'm like, I'm so sorry. I'm not going to be able to call you Pink. And, and you've had amazing collaboration. So uh... Yeah, but we had a really good time together and it was fun. And all of that was just very experimental on my part. And I just was like, I don't understand you know, what you're doing. I don't get the white chick singing this bling bling stuff with the pink hair. It doesn't make any sense to me. And she's like, well, that's not what I started out wanting to do. I ended up that way. And, and I asked her to bring me her CD collection. I'm like, I'm just curious. So she brought me her CD collection the next day. And it was Aerosmith, Aretha Franklin, Janis Joplin, Billy Joel, Patti Smith, the Beach Boys, the Beatles, Stevie Wonder, it was all this very cool music. And I said, how the fuck are you singing about bling bling and ching ching and most girls? Yeah, I don't get it. Your taste is very soulful. So I operated from that. So everything that we wrote, again, was me making her ad lib, just find out who she is and what she wants to do. And it was really fun doing that record because it was so not my style at all. You know, like some of the things that were going on was just like me kind of experimenting too. So I think that's what made it a really good collaboration. And I think, Hey man, that's what makes you a great songwriter is like, you have to get out of your own shit all the time. You know, you have to, a great collaborator, a great songwriter, isn't just simply writing songs for yourself. You're trying to put yourself out there to be open to what is going on in the world. Where do I see, you know, what do I want to do? What's my vision? How do I want to convey my messages? And again, you can be like a Dr. Luke or, you know, those guys that just <laughs> poop out the same format <laughs> over and over, the same tempo, the same staticky noise, you know, over and over and over. And those guys are killing it. And that's great. I'm really happy for people that can create like that. I just don't know how to just release things that have no purpose. Was that your first time writing a song for someone else's voice, for someone else's instrument? I didn't write the song, no. Did I, you write I, that for yourself? Or I No, I didn't write it for myself. I just wrote it. And I didn't think about it. That's what I'm saying. You can't edit yourself. What will happen is we can be in the middle of a song and be like, Every night I'm waiting up and I thank you all. Mm, I'm going to change it. Falling through the cracks one day, but I don't know what to do. Mm. 
No, I think I like the other version. Every night I'm waiting. And then we just go back and forth doubting what we're doing. So that's the editor and that editor fucks everything up. And like, and then you'll go, what, what is this for? This sounds like more of a dude song. Just write the song. You know, the song is coming to you for a reason and it might not be for you. So I think that's where we have to really step outside of ourselves because not everything we write is for us. It might be for some guy that you're going to meet two weeks from now and he's going to go out, hey, I love your vibe. Do you have any songs? And you're going to, fuck, yeah, I just wrote this weird song that sounds like an old country guy and you're an old country guy. I'm not, it's perfect for you, you know? So out of all the songs you've written that are either on the shelf or maybe were recorded, if you could pick a voice to record one of them, what would be the dream voice and the dream song that you've written to see recorded? Honestly, I don't mean to be a dickhead. No, it's all right. I'm only right now. I'm in the here now. I, I don't I don't work that way. I am constantly like, I don't work with what is not here. Yeah, would I love to work with Madonna, but I don't have a song for Madonna because I need to be in the room with her. Like, that's what I'm saying. Like, I can write songs all the time, but I don't know where these songs are going until the world presents to me the vessel that these songs are going to be spoken through. So you have been called the songwriter therapist, a music therapist. Christine Aguilera calls you up and you guys co-write Beautiful. No, she didn't co-write that. Oh, or, so how does this happen? I walked into a club, which I rarely ever go to, and Christina was sitting with a bunch of people and the bodyguard and the red rope, you know. I had met her really briefly, like a maybe, I don't know, five months prior or something, before the Pink album. All the people left. She was there by herself. I went in there and I said, hey, I heard you're working on a record. And she's like, yeah. I said, you know what? It'd be really great if you actually really tapped into your depression and your darkness for this one, because the world knows you can sing, but nobody actually really knows that you feel what you're singing. And she just was like, and then I'm like, oh, so I got to go. And so I left. <laughs> My friend is like, what the fuck did you say to Christina Aguilera? And I'm like, why? And he's like, she's like watching you. Her mouth is open, watching you walk off. And I said what I said. He's like, you did not just say that to Christina Aguilera. And I'm like, I did, you know, because I was just telling her the truth to tap into her depression and her darkness. You know, I kid you not. A week later, her people called and said that Christina wants to meet with Linda. And so. She came to my studio and I had just written Beautiful and I was still working out lyrics and stuff. When she got there, and I have a rule that no bodyguards, no groupies, there's no, what do you call posses, no managers are allowed in any of my sessions. They are very distracting and I just don't appreciate them. So she was in there by herself and she was very nervous and she's like, well, can you play something just to break the ice? And I'm like, Okay. And she's like, I, you know, I, I like your voice. It'd be nice to hear you sing. So I'm like, okay, I'll play this song. Beautiful. You know, it's like, whatever. So I'm playing it and she's all the way in the back there. You know, and let's just say she's back there somewhere. It wasn't in this room. This room is different, but she's in the back of the room and she gets closer and closer until she's like standing right here by the piano. And she's like, can you demo that down for me and write out the lyrics for me and give it to me? And I'm like, uh, why? I'm still trying to understand what this song's about. I can't even sing it because I don't believe that I am beautiful, you know? So that's where I'm coming from. It's like, I'm not beautiful. I don't believe that. That's like, 
I would never say that about myself. How ridiculous, you know? She was certain she wanted it for the album. And I was like, well, you can't sing a song like this. You know, you're, you are beautiful, you know? And so then I was like, okay, I'm going to let her sing it. And then I'll just see what happens. And so she came back and I laid down the piano. She's like, can I bring a friend? And I said, of course. Yeah, of course you can bring a friend. No problem. She's like, I'm just nervous. So I gave her the paper, you know, and you just, she's sitting from the microphone and we're all in the same room and you just hear this. And then you can just hear to her friend. She says that to him. Says, And as soon as she said that, I knew the song was meant for her. And then the song became clear what it was about. It was about somebody who didn't think they were beautiful. It was actually about somebody who's insecure and they're telling themselves, you are beautiful. We are beautiful. You are beautiful. We are beautiful no matter what anybody says. And then this hot chick is singing the song and you're seeing all the vulnerability from her and insecurity. I was like, oh, fuck. Then the song became clear to me what it was all about. And she nailed it one take. The only thing we went back and did was the bridge. She kind of missed a couple notes that she wanted to do. The song that, you know, went number one that has blown up all over the world was one take except for a couple of punches in the bridge. Well, here's where I think your authenticity really comes through because they did send her into the studio with a bunch of session people or something I read and they did another version and you and she came back and said, that's not it. That's not, that's horrible. No, that, never happened. that never happened. I thought I read that. No, no, that didn't happen. What happened was Ron Fair, when I was on vacation, he tried to put more strings on there because I did a quartet. I did it 16 tracks. We're talking 16 tracks when people were using 90 to 100 tracks on Pro Tools. I did 16 tracks of the quartet, piano, moog, guitar, bass, drums, vocals. And it was tight. I mean, it's a great sounding song. So when I was away, Ron Fair, he hated the production because it was so simple. As you know, Ron Fair overproduces everything. And so when I was gone, he was trying to get the session to put strings on it while I was gone, you know, and... I actually came back from vacation. I'm like, Ron, what are you doing? No, 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 no. You don't do that. And he, he never got the session. So that, no, never, that never happened. Oh, so they never put the strings on. They didn't wreck no. the song. They stuck no, 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 with the original. And yeah, well, they didn't have a choice. You know, Christina loved it. I loved it. I mean, nobody could touch it. You can't touch someone else's body of work. It's where your instincts are amazing. It's just, this is a hard business, as you said, but there's also, everybody has an opinion on this stuff. And yeah. you have to fight for your opinions. You've had to fight for your opinions your entire career. And you've been right. Dude, I'm still fighting for my opinions. It's honestly, when you have so much, um, my intentions are really good. And when you are a good person that is thinking about the artist and the integrity of the music and the respect of it, it will always be a fight. because. It's rare that someone's going to stand up and fight for the artist. It's rare someone's going to fight for the integrity of a song because they're too scared to lose something. Like I've dealt with so many people that didn't want to fight a bad deal because they didn't want to lose the song, like the opportunity. I'm like, are you kidding me? I'm not going to let my guy, because I manage artists and producers and songwriters too. And I said, I'm not going to let my guy 
this deal is unacceptable. I'm going back and I'm asking for a certain amount of time and or amount of money and negotiate. And, you know, it'll be a song that my guy wrote with somebody else. So the other manager is like, I'm ready to sign off. And I'm like, are you nuts? This is a terrible deal. But that's what people do. They don't want to lose something. They operate from fear. They make decisions based on fear. And anytime fear comes in to play for me, I actually do the opposite. I never make decisions based on fear because that only lands you in a in not a good place. You're not respected. People know you're a pushover. And everybody knows you cannot push me over and I'm not being bold or confident. I'm just being, this is who I am. This is the person I built based on what I know about this business. It will tear you apart and not intentionally. Nobody's doing it maliciously or intentionally. It's just part of what happens in the game. And it is a game and it's a very strategic game. And so I strategically operate from my heart. So you wanted to talk about Cheap Strick, Perfect Stranger, and I love that you picked this band and this song to talk about. It's a band that I grew up with, and, you know, you co-wrote this song with the band. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, that one was interesting, you know, because, you know, I, Cheap Trick is like, you know, live at Budokan. I am air guitaring, bouncing on my bed. I mean, the best record ever and uh surrender surrender ever a kid and I, I want you to want me all those songs are so good so they called me to write a song with them in my mind i'm like i can't do that i'm never going to write a song better than surrender you know so but i don't want to miss this opportunity so they wanted to come work with me and they booked it and and so the night before and i never do this ever i just when i do a, a writing session it's always from scratch when the person walks in but this particular session, I wanted to be prepared. So I had wrote Perfect Stranger and the majority of it I had written. So the melody, a lot of the lyrics and the music. And so they came in and I walk into my studio and there's just all Rick Nielsen's guitars down my hallway. And I'm like going, holy shit. I have my mod orange kit that I set up for Bunny and he was like freaking out like with this kit. So I had dialed up stuff the night before and they walk in, you, you know, you're trying to contain yourself because it's cheap trick, you know, and I'm like, try to be cool. And they're like, so what do you got? Like, do you have anything? And I'm like going, well, I have a song that I started last night that I was nervous. I wanted to be somewhat prepared, but normally I don't do this. And they're like, well, what is it? And so I just start playing them the song. Rick figured out the chords. And they take it down a half step and all of a sudden they're like, okay, let's go do it. And Robin took the lyrics. I mean, it all happened like that. And they, they're like, let's record it. We love it. And I'm like, but this is not better than surrender. You know, like that's all in my mind. I'm saying this is not better than surrender. It was like, I barely had time to say hello. And we were already recording the song. So I dial up the sounds really quick. We play the song two times and Bunny gets up and he's out. Wow. Done. And I'm like, what, what, you know, I wasn't thrilled yet. I didn't feel like we had the take. And they're like, Bunny only does two takes and he's out. So he's gone. I'm like, okay. So we start doing overdubs and, you know, putting more guitars with Rick and then all the vocals and everything. We just get it all done. And Robin adjusts some lyrics. And so, yeah, that was it. 
Wow. And then it became Perfect Stranger, but it's a really great song. They were like, you know, this it is a great song. And I just wrote another one for them and that they're doing for the new album. And it's really amazing. I think it's way better than Perfect Stranger. I can't remember the name of the song, but they're putting out a new album. I sent it to them. I didn't even know they were doing it until their manager called and said, hey, what's the splits on this? What do you want to do? This is what the guys did. And I'm like, uh, the splits of what? And they're like, the song that you sent them, they recorded it. And I'm like, they did. <laughs> so I'm like, so excited. And it sounds so good. And it actually is pretty damn close to a surrender, you know, so I'm actually really happy about it. Yeah, no, it's, uh, I don't know if it's a sequel, but it definitely uh, is a great song. And it's a, it's a cheap trick song. It's not someone else's song. It's for them. Well, that's what to me is important. When you have a band like Cheap Trick, I can't go write them a Muse song, you know? Right. You have to stay true to who the artist is. And one of my things that I struggle with is when artists want to be in the mainstream, they change everything that was great about them so they could fit into this. It's almost like they, they're they lowering their bar to fit with this sidewalk, you know? And it's like, they're a fucking empire building, and they lower their standards just to be at the level of a sidewalk, a curb, you know? And it always shocks me when a great artist does that. So I just try to keep the, again, focus on who the artist is. And I'm very lucky because I can morph and I have a lot of musical style in me. Like I can write a country song, I can write a disco song, I can just jump around and do whatever because I'm not afraid, I'm fearless when it comes to the creative. If I want to write a country song, I just go into that character and I feel it. I'm emotional about it. I can be an old guy that's smoking a cigar at a piano lounge and just sit there, I'm not going any crazy, you know, whatever, and just start being that person. Or I can be a very, you know, whatever Debbie Boone if I want to, but I have to feel it and I have to have the passion. And I believe that's what makes me a very unique songwriter. Again, I'm not popping out hits all over the place. But, you know, I really enjoy what I do. I'm proud of myself for sticking to my heart and being an advocate to stay true to who you are. So one of the things I've talked to a lot of songwriters about is how hard it is to write a love song. You know, Paul McCartney said it's pretty easy to write a love song, and it's not. The thing about love is a great love song. Isn't it really great? I love that one. How did this come about? Tell me about this song. Well, so Alicia Keys, you know, calls me and wants to come work with me. And I'm all, fuck yeah, you know? <laughs> and so she was a little late. So I was sitting at my roads and I just started playing this song and she walked in on it, you know? And she's like, what's that? And I'm like, I don't know. It's just some song. She's like, well, just keep going, girl, you know? And so... And I record everything. Like anytime I'm in the studio, it's like, it's just recording because I can come up with like five songs in very quickly and I'll lose what I did, you know, 10 minutes ago. So I record everything. So I'm sitting there and I just start going, love, I'm going to find you, I'm going to remind you when you are, right? And so then I do the whole take. And then she's like, can you play that back? And then she starts writing everything I'm saying. She's like, do it again. You know, and then I make up some more stuff. She writes it all down and then she starts filling in the gaps. And that's how that song came to life. It's like she just took all my ad libs and turned it into 
lyrics. And then again, we just jumped right into it and started writing, you know, recording it and she loved it. And then that just basically started our whole, you know, creative relationship. And it was super fun to work with her because she's so talented and very clear of what she wants. And I never met somebody that confident because she didn't care where the song was coming from. It's like she just heard that there was something real happening when I was singing it. And then once she could understand my emotion by writing all the lyrics down, she's like, okay, let me play now. And like, she made me play piano all the time because I play a lot different than her. I'm a little more simple. I'm a little more John Lennon. And she's obviously extremely incredible. So then it would be like time. Okay. And she'd move me off and then she would take over. And then it was just like all of a sudden it just takes on this whole life because it's now Alicia Keys singing and playing this song that was really me. I don't have that type of voice, you know? Who does? I mean, my goodness, you know? Yeah. So (laughs) it was really awesome to work with her because honestly, most artists would be like insecure about the producer or the other writer being so in front of the song. Let me say it this way. A lot of artists will cock block the creative experience because of their ego. And Alicia Keys isn't like that. She invites in everything whole of you. You know, she wants you to shine as much as she's going to shine because she knows when you're shining, it's going to shine for her, you know? So she's definitely a lifter, you know, a creative, she expels the creative out of you. Very collaborative. So this is a love song. And so how do you write a love song? Do you do, what do you think about what inspires you in the lyrics to write about love? It's such a hard thing to explain, you know, and to write about. So what what was behind this song? This particular thing about love is about love in the world. You know, it's not about heartbreak love. It's if you're trying to write constantly from the heartbreak of love, that can be difficult, you know, because honestly, you're kind of reinventing what really happened. You know, like we're taking in our own, you want to be so poetic. You want like, oh, I got to say, it's so personal, right? But when you're writing about love and the true meaning of what love is, whether it's humanity, and you're not personalizing it too much about me and her or whatever, I believe the song becomes very easy if you can tap into what's going on in the world and how important love is. There's many types of love. And maybe the love you're speaking of that is hard to write about is just the one, the one-on-one, you know, relationship. To me, most of my songs are not about one-on-one. It's more global. It's more about you interpret what you want, like beautiful. It's not about me. It was very relatable to a lot of people. What's up? Not about me. But I talked about being 25 years, but it was relatable because somebody out there is 25. And you can relate about the story. Like, and I scream from the top of my lungs, what the fuck is going on? You know, what's going on? Get the party started. It's always somebody that thinks they're like the queen of the party and, or the show or whatever. And that was relatable because it was like such a fun, stupid song, you know? And so I think that, again, I just somehow tap into the universe and the people, not me. So the songs are not about me. 
they're just about, except there's one song I think I put in there, like it fucking hurts. Yeah. Deep that's what robot. I wanted to talk about next. Deep dark robot. It fucking hurts is about a love breakup, right? And that is, <laughs> that's about a love breakup. I was in the studio all the time and I'm like, I need to get the fuck out of the studio. I need, cause I, I love performing and I was a great artist, you know, and I was a great performer and stuff. still are. Thank you. And I, I was like, I need to get out of the studio. I've been here too long. So I wrote this album called Eight Songs About a Girl. And that whole album is a love song. And it was about this like person that was mentally, just emotionally playing with me. And so I wrote this album. It's like, and I called it Deep Dark Robot, the band. And I just went on tour. But that song is interesting because I fucking love it. But the whole thing, it's like, it was all in real time. So every single time this person did something, I wrote a song so it was all in real time happening, you know, and um, till the end, the last song, like, fuck you, stupid bitch. I'm not going to waste my time anymore on you. So but it fucking hurts. Like you hear the torment and what I was going through. It's like, I don't know that voice. That voice just came out, you know, I don't know. And I don't know. You know, I don't know what the hell that voice was, but that's the way the song wanted to be sung. It's like literally one of my favorite songs I've ever written. So Deep Dark Robot, I think this song is in the middle of the eight songs, but it's the number one Spotify favorite of the album. Yeah, I think it's just a great song. Again, I just really like it. I like the way weird way I'm singing it. It's like part dude. I don't know what it is, actually. It's very strange sounding vocal. But it was so moving to me and it was so real and it was so painful because I wrote it like literally that experience happened the night before. And then I came in, wrote the song and just recorded it. So everything again was recorded in real time of how it was affecting me and happening. So this is a personal song and tell me if I'm off the mark here and you don't want to go here, but this is a girlfriend of yours going out with another guy. Mm. Yes. It wasn't a girlfriend. It was a girl that was playing me. Okay. That kept making me believe that, you know, that we were going to have this relationship and literally would be texting me, Hey, I, I miss you, blah, 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 blah. And then I would see in the tabloids that time she was texting me, she was with some other guy. And I'd be like, what, you know, what? Like, no, that time it doesn't, she was texting me this and then she's sitting with that guy. So it was like, a mind fucking. So I came in and to the studio and I just wrote that song. And because I was so tormented, like I was just like, I was addicted to this in and out and in and out. And, and it was crazy. Like I was in it. It was like poison that I just loved drinking. And so I was getting some satisfaction out of it in some way, because it was creatively really kind of fun for me having this experience and writing all these songs and you mean nothing to me, you know, like the, all, if you look at all the song titles, I mean, honestly, I love that album, the way it was recorded. I mean, it was so quick and so fun. And then playing it live was super fun too. And I, it's gritty. It's cool. It's a great record. It really is a great record. This record should be listened to by my listeners. Okay. You need to go to Spotify and listen to this among many of Linda's music. And we're going to have a playlist up on the website of this stuff, but this is something that has been overlooked. Let's just say it's not a radio 
album per se. Right. You know, so. No, no. But, you know, I do think there there's radio songs on there, but it's just like, you know, I, again, I wasn't going that route. I was just... I can tell you, It Fucking Hurts is not going to get played on radio. <laughs> no, it's not. Your listeners love it. They made it your number one on the album. Yeah, I love that. So tell me about the album and working with Tony. So Tony was a friend of mine, a drummer, you know, um, he was just a friend of mine at the time. And I just said, hey, I'm going to do this album. You want to jump in and do it with me? And he's like, yeah. So we just kind of, it was just me and him. So, and I just played everything. So he played drums and I'd sing, play guitar and drums to get the song down. And then I just played bass and keyboards and did all the other guitars and, and did it all on my own. And so then when I went to go tour it, I just put a band together and, but it was super fun. I mean, I dial in the sounds and make it really ratty and it's a cool record. I mean, it really is. I think it's actually... If I re-released it now, I think it would probably have more legs because it's, I think I may have hit something a little bit before it's time Yeah, because that style wasn't really ripping. I think we had Jet and again, it was a chick doing the style, you know, and I think that that kind of throws people off a little bit because it's very not a chick record. Like you can tell, like I'm not singing like a normal girl, you know, like my voice just doesn't do that. I have a very interesting, weird little tone that shows up because I change my voice depending on the song. Like I just don't have one tone as you can clearly hear. Like I, I change, like if you listen to, you know, you mean nothing to me. It's like, I sound like, you know, a French, French lounge singer. It's like anything very soft and talking like this all the way. And then, and it's like, and fucking hurts. It's like, only you can break my heart and I don't know, you know, so it's like it, the voices change on the whole entire record. I don't know if you would react negatively to this and I'm going to throw it out there and go ahead, punch me in the face if, if it's a dumb idea, but I think this would be a cool song for a guy to record. Oh yeah. I could see that. You could. Okay. Yeah. Totally. All right. Maybe not such a dumb maybe idea. Maybe I'll make note and go find some guy to sing this song. Oh, my stars. This has been amazing. Linda Perry, I have to thank you so much. I have to thank my sound engineer, DJ Wyatt Schmidt. Uh, thank Luis, your sound engineer. Is there anybody else you wanted to? Oh, Karen, been amazing helping get put this together. Would love to do some more songs with you if you ever want to come back on Backstory Songs. Yeah, it's I've been please. a it was true fun. pleasure. I have to thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Thank you to all your listeners. And yeah, go check out uh, Eight Songs About a Girl by Deep Dark Robots.